All of those, there we go, there we go. All of those things that just continuously point us to Jesus, right? Unplugged microphones, wrong scriptures, you know, it's tripping on these stairs as we come up. Uh, thank you, Jesus, right? Okay. Uh, well, hey, it is good to, to be with you again. Man, it's been three weeks since I've, since I've preached from this, from this pulpit. Uh, and our brother is absolutely correct. I, I, forget about me. What we just heard was God speaking to us. Okay, that is the word of God. The God who created the heavens and the earth has revealed himself to us and has spoken to us. So we're going to go to his word this morning. Okay? Uh, and what we're going to do is start a new series in 1 John entitled Foundations. Okay? Foundations of the Christian faith. And as we work our way through 1 John, and it's going to take a while, we'll, we'll be here until June okay, with a small break for Easter time, but we're going to be in 1 John for a while. And as we make our way through 1 John, I want you to notice that the apostle is focusing on three areas of our walk, okay? Truth, obedience, and love. Three standards by which we can evaluate whether or not we have the real thing. You see, this letter is another instance in the New Testament where we see the church contending for the faith against false teaching. Just as Paul had warned decades earlier, the wolves had come. The wolves had come seeking to ravage the flock. These ministers of Satan were teaching that Jesus Christ wasn't human, that he really didn't take on human flesh. And this was causing confusion and division in the church. You see, truth was under attack. And so John goes on the offensive refuting this teaching. And he did this because truth matters. Truth matters. Doctrine matters. Friends, understand something, okay? The biggest danger facing the church isn't the superstition of atheism... It's the dismissal of truth as unimportant, as unnecessary. The real danger isn't unbelief, but wrong belief. And so wrong belief and heresy and deceivers are what concern John. And he cannot remain silent because he knows that the counterfeit Christ being put forward by these false teachers will not save anyone. Friends, listen to me. Faith placed in a worthless object is useless. Did you hear that? Faith placed in a worthless object is useless, even if that faith is sincere and zealous. Even if it's sincere and zealous. And so it is fundamentally important that we believe what Jesus taught about himself. It's vital that we understand the apostles' teaching. Our salvation hangs on it. Listen to me, church. Jesus is not the spirit brother of Lucifer. He's not Michael the archangel. He's not simply equal to Muhammad. He's not God the Father in disguise. He's not merely a wise teacher. He's not a flower child. And he's not a mystical pyramid scheme. None of those Christs will save. Jesus is the God-man. He is Savior and Lord. Who Christ is and what Christ has done are bound 
together. And you cannot change one without losing the other. And when that happens, we forfeit the gospel. And John says those who don't understand the biblical truth about Jesus and the gospel are not Christians. And friends, listen to me. We're not free from the dangers of the first century. We live in a time where the words Christ and Christianity have been abducted and then redefined in order to fit with secular ideals, in order to eliminate the concepts of sin and repentance, in order to erase the lines of objective truth. And you know what? Sadly, sadly, the church is guilty of conspiring with the culture in this. We've cared more about what man thinks of us than what God thinks of us. And so we've sold Jesus for a few pieces of silver in pursuit of popularity and acceptance and relevance. Instead of offering the grace and the truth of the holy, righteous, sin-destroying Savior, we've dressed Jesus in the garments of a prostitute, parading him in front of carnal men in order to appeal to the sinful appetites of carnal men. But let me tell you something, okay? And I'm going to be brutally honest here with the church. You aren't virtuous when you stand for or believe nothing. You aren't hip when you wave the flag of sexual revolution. You aren't open-minded when you tell people they can live in unrepentant sin and rebellion and still call themselves Christians. No, you are an idol worshiper, worshiping at the altar of comfort and sex and acceptance and self. But friends, idol worship will be of no benefit to those who are enslaved to sin. What a lost and dying world needs is Jesus, in all the fullness and beauty and power of who he is. This world will not benefit by us subtracting from him or compromising him or redefining him. Listen, your influence in this world won't come from talking like the world or from living like the world or from loving like the world, but from engaging the world in such a way as to show them an alternative to the darkness. See, you're not called to look like the world. How could you be? You are alive and they're dead. And dead men will not be rescued by some lifeless half-gospel. They need someone who looks like Christ and isn't ashamed of the gospel. Someone who believes and confesses and stands on the truth. But friends, it can be hard to believe, to believe with confidence, with so many people whispering so many different messages in our ears. And so John, our brother John, the apostle, is writing to people who are confused and who want to know if they've gotten the real thing. You see, that's the question John is asking throughout this entire epistle. What does real Christianity look like, and do you possess it? But he doesn't just ask those questions and then leave us in doubt and uncertainty. He gives us the answer. And so over and over and over again throughout this letter, John says this. He says, by this we know. By this we know that we have come to know him. By this we may know that we are in him. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. 
By this we know love. By this we shall know that we are of the truth. By this we know the Spirit of God. By this we know that we abide in Him. By this we know that we love the children of God. John's point is that there is a real Christianity that exists and that can be affirmed by certain evidences in the life of those professing faith in Christ. There is fruit that witnesses to our rebirth. John says, by this we know. But what is the this that he keeps referring? What is the this? Well, throughout the letter, he intertwines several key themes that help Christians test whether or not we've embraced the real thing. And so first, he gives us a doctrinal test. Then, a moral test. And finally, a test of love. Truth, obedience, and love are the marks of every true Christian. And what John says is that faith, living, saving faith, is believing, obeying, and loving. By these, we know. And friends, I want you to be confident that yours is saving faith. But that confidence must be grounded in the foundations of our faith. Okay? And so I'm excited to dig into 1 John with you. But we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. Okay? Because like I said earlier, right out of the gate, John will hit us and he'll hit us hard with truth and obedience. And that'll be his focus for the first two and a half chapters, okay? It's not until the middle of chapter 3 that John really takes up the subject of love. But I don't want love to sort of get lost in the mix here, okay, as we wait and wait for chapter 3. So we're going to start with love here. I'm going to introduce love at the beginning, okay? We'll get a taste of love from a passage from 1 John, but we're going to spend most of our morning in Romans 12. Okay, Romans 12 sort of opens up this passage in 1 John and sort of lays the groundwork for where we're going. Okay? So let me ask you a question. What is love? What is love? It's been the topic of countless songs, and stories, and movies. But does love refer to a feeling, a food? Can it be fallen out of or lost? And, and here's the big question. How do we distinguish real love from infatuation or indigestion? Right? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Okay, love will be our topic this morning. And to find its true meaning and purpose, we should go to the source of love. And so we're going to let Scripture guide us. Okay, turn to 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. All right? Listen to the greatest words ever penned about love. 1 John 4, verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That's a weighty passage, friends. And it says that love is a person. God is love. And God's love, real and genuine love, is demonstrated to us through his commitment, faithfulness, and sacrifice, exemplified most profoundly by the cross of Christ. And what John tells us is that to know God is to love like God. You see, God calls those he raises to life to follow their Savior, joining him in the work of love. And don't miss that order there, okay? God's love must first be poured out upon us in salvation before we can love. You see, love doesn't originate within us. We only love because God first loved us, enabling us to love. But but who do we love? And how do we love them? Well, Romans 12 says one of the ways God desires to be worshipped by his people is by his people radically and sacrificially loving other people. We worship God by loving others. That's the great commandment of the new covenant. Love. You see, love is the key to our entire Christian life. We are to emulate God by loving And as we'll see, Paul keeps returning to love as the defining characteristic of the Christian. And he says, our relationship with God, with our fellow believers, and even with unbelievers, is to be characterized by love. Listen to what he says in verse 9. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Now, in the Greek, verse 9 begins with two words, okay? Paul says, sincere love. Those words are the heading for everything that follow, and they assume action. You see, it's not enough to know what love is or or what love looks like. We are to be loving, to be demonstrating love, to be acting in love. And the word used here for love is agape, and that's a rare term meant to express the highest form of love possible, God's own love and commitment to his children. And what the Bible says is Christians, Christian people, are charged with passing on that supernatural love to others. That's one of the purposes of your life. That's one of the purposes of your life, to pass on God's love to others. But I want you to notice something very important here, okay? Love is such a basic and essential part of what it means to be a Christian that here in verse 9, Paul isn't actually commanding us to love. He's commanding us to make sure that the love he presumes we already have and demonstrate is genuine. He says, make sure you're loving with godly love. You see, love is a given To be a Christian is to love. And the love that defines us must be without hypocrisy. That's that's the literal translation here. Meant to convey the idea that our love shouldn't be like that of an actor playing a part on the stage. Right? Without hypocrisy. Now, I'm sure many of us have felt the sting and have been wounded by someone failing to love you 
refusing to love you, forgetting to love you, pretending to love you. That's the reality of living in a fallen world. But you know what? If we're honest with ourselves, we know that we have also failed and refused and forgotten someone. But listen, the God who hasn't failed and hasn't forgotten, he calls us to his kind of love, to agape love. And in urging that our love be genuine, Paul is warning about making our love a mere pretense, an outward display or emotion that doesn't conform to the nature of the God who is love and who has loved us. And so continuing in verse 9, Paul says, genuine godly love will do this. It will abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Now again, that's extremely strong language, friends. Basically what he's saying is that love hates. Love hates sin. It hates evil. It despises that which dishonors God. But it also holds fast or clings to that which is good. You see, love is meant to be united to and inseparable from that which is good and holy and pleasing to God. And that type of genuine godly love was most fully expressed by the cross. The cross is the greatest representation of abhorring evil and loving good. And the amazing, mind-blowing thing is that Christians have been commissioned to continue that work of love. Right? That's one of the purposes of your life. And so woven together in the midst of our 13 verses this morning is a call to do three things, okay? Number one, love God. Number two, love one's fellow Christians. And number three, love unbelievers. And we can't get those out of order, okay? You see, our love for others flows from our love for God. It's in the verses 11 and 12 here. They say, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. I actually kind of liked how our sister read it this morning. What was, how did it go? What was that, the the spirit part? Be aglow in the spirit. Man, that was good. That was good. Uh, So, that... That seems like, and our brother kind of alluded to this as well, that seems like such somewhat of just a series of unrelated exhortations, right? Sort of rapid-fire commands to us. But what that really is, those two verses, is a call to love God, okay? Who do we love? Well, first, we love God. How do we love Him? We love Him with unwavering devotion, You see, God's top priority for his people is that they would serve him, right? Serve the Lord. That they would love him in worship. That's the great command given in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema, right? It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. We have been created for the purpose of loving God. 
He is to be our supreme object of affection. And we are to love him above all else with our entire being, all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. Anything else is idolatry. Friends, our love for God is an expression of our worship. And it's to always be directed Godward in complete devotion to him. That's what it means to not be slothful in zeal. We love God with an enthusiastic and loyal love. But the big question is, how in the world do we do that? How do we do that? We're tempted every single day to become lazy and complacent in our love for God. And in the face of so many things seeking to steal away our affections and replace God in our hearts, it seems only natural that we would lose steam in this lifelong pursuit, this lifelong responsibility to love God. And so how do we remain devoted to God in love? Well, like he does time and time again, what God commands... God supplies. Verse 11 says, We continue in our love for God as we are empowered by the Spirit of God. You see, to be fervent in spirit translates a word that means to bubble or boil over. And so what Paul is telling us is that in order to love God in the way God desires to be loved, we must surrender our lives, allowing the Holy Spirit to set us on fire. Holy Spirit must do this work in us. Friends, as we continually submit our lives to God, what we'll experience is the Holy Spirit exciting within us a desire to worship God with a passionate love. And listen, this fervency in the Spirit that Paul is calling us to is the difference between being lukewarm and being on fire for God. But how does that work itself out practically? Right? I mean, it's one thing to talk about that, but how does that work itself out practically in the day-to-day course of our lives? Well, verse 12 shows us how it happens. We are to rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. Hope, endurance, and prayer. Those are the ways we keep pressing on toward God. You see, our only confidence, our only confidence in this life comes from the hope we have in the promises of God. And God has promised eternal life to those who believe in the sacrificial, atoning, gracious work of His Son. And so Christians rejoice in our hope as co-heirs with Christ that we will one day share in His glory. Our eyes are to be fixed on that wonderful hope. That hope kindles a love of God in our hearts. Okay? But Paul quickly moves us from hope. He moves us from hope to our need for endurance. You see, the path on which we presently walk, right, this path of faith, will most certainly culminate in our great hope. We are assured of that. But this path that we must walk on is overrun with tribulation. It's overrun with tribulation. In this life, we will have trouble. We move toward God and toward our hope, bearing up under the weight of many trials, much pain, and terrible heartache. But listen, as real as our struggles may be, 
as painful as they may be, Paul says, compared to what awaits us, these tribulations are nothing. We are being prepared through our temporary suffering for something eternal. And this eternal inheritance is so beautiful that it's beyond comprehension. And so as we seek to worship and live on fire for God, we must endure in hope. We must endure in our hope. This endurance fans the flame of our love for God. But Paul continues and says, our ability to rejoice and endure is dependent on the degree to which we heed his challenge to be constant in prayer. You see, in the midst of our troubles, it's prayer that reminds us of our hope and feeds our passion for God. And so, friends, we must pray without ceasing. Prayer is our direct line to God, who is the source of love and peace and hope and endurance. Prayer stokes the fire of love for God. But listen to me, okay? Listen. As we seek to love God with unwavering devotion, we always remember that this doesn't mean our lives will be perfect. Right? We will fall. We will fail. We will sin. But for the Christian, for the Christian, we are assured that grace will pick us up and the blood of Christ will cover us, allowing the direction of our lives to be moving Godward, which means in faith and repentance, our supreme desire will be to become more and more like Christ, to become more like Christ in our words, in our deeds, and in our love. And so what we find is that as God loves us, as he pours his love out upon us, and as we love God, our love for him cannot help but translate into a love for others. And that's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. Okay? In that passage, Jesus sums up the Shema from Deuteronomy 6 but he takes it one step further. Okay? Jesus did that a lot. Right? Looked at the old covenant and took it one step further. He says the entirety of God's word, this is what Jesus says, the entirety of God's word, the law and the prophets can be summed up in four words. Love God, love others. Love God, love others. That's our mission. Okay? But who exactly are these others that we're called to love? Well, that's the question Paul is answering in the rest of our verses this morning. Okay, and to do that, he allows Jesus to inform his thoughts. And so we should do the same. All right? Listen to what Jesus says in John 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Right? People will know that we're disciples if we have love for one another. Who do we love? Well, we love our fellow Christians. And how do we love them? Well, we love them selflessly. Just like Christ loved us, we love other Christians until it hurts. 
And that's what Paul focuses on in verses 10, 13, 15, and 16. Okay, listen, listen to what he says. This is from our passage in Romans. Sort of echoing the words of his master. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Okay, so after giving a general and broad call to sincere love, back in verse 9, Paul narrows his focus beginning in verse 10 and admonishes Christians to treat each other as brothers and sisters in the family of God. Church, according to God's word, we are to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. As a matter of fact, that's one of the marks by which the world will know that we actually belong to Christ. Our love for the family of God testifies to that. You see, a biblical understanding of the church, a biblical understanding of the church, is that of an extended family whose members are bound together in intimate fellowship and are called to show heartfelt love and devotion to one another. Love that is meant to be an act of worship to God. You see, but Paul is never one who is satisfied with just theory, okay? We don't live in theory here. And so continuing in verse 13, he calls the family of God to put their love for one another into practice. And he even specifies two ways that we can do this, okay? First, we meet the needs of God's people. And second, we're hospitable to God's people, okay? First, Paul says we contribute to the needs of the saints. And here he actually uses the word koinonia, which means fellowship, all right? But in this instance, Paul isn't urging us to have fellowship with the saints, but to have fellowship with their needs. He says, Christians, you are to have fellowship with or participate in the needs of the saints. And the needs described here are material needs, right? Food, clothing, shelter. And so the fellowship we're being called to is the sharing of our material goods with Christians who are less well off. This is a call to sacrificial generosity, Loving until it hurts by giving until it hurts. But listen, honestly, this goes against our very nature. Because money can be a very sticky topic, even in the church. Okay? And do you know why? Well, because deep down, deep down in there, we all really love our money and our stuff. And so you have some pastors who really love money and want to get rich on the backs of their congregations. And you have some congregations who really love money and hold it tightly in their hands. The Bible says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many, with many pangs. And friends, listen, when we're caught under that spell... That spell, that evil spell, it begins to pollute how we view our giving. You see, we don't give as a means of gaining influence in the church 
or to be congratulated or to show off. We give as a tangible expression of love and as an obedient act of worship. Okay? But along with giving, Paul says another dimension of Christian love is the practice of hospitality. Opening up our homes and inviting others in. But if you notice, Paul sort of escalates this call. Hospitality, like, like love, okay, listen, like love is a given, hospitality is a given. Hospitality is actually assumed here as a way of life. And so what we're being commanded to do is to pursue ways to show this hospitality. Meaning we don't wait for people to ask us for help or care, Right? We don't just sit back waiting for people to come to us. We go to them. We seek opportunities to be hospitable. We diligently pursue ways to be generous. That's how we love our brothers and sisters. Okay? But our responsibility to the family of God doesn't end at a financial obligation. That sort of covers the financial side, meeting needs, hospitality in the home. We are to love the body of Christ through emotional care as well. Listen to what Paul says in verses 15 and 16. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. See, part of being a family is seeking to enter into the joy and sorrows of our fellow believers. As a matter of fact, this is one of the ways we demonstrate the sincerity of our love, right? And in some ways, it seems odd that Paul even has to make such a command here, doesn't it? But listen, again, this type of love isn't natural. Our our hearts tend toward envy and covetousness and selfishness. And so this is spirit-empowered love being described here. Love that is genuine, love that is sincere, will not respond to a fellow believer's joy with envy or bitterness, right? That's not how we meet the joy of our brothers and sisters. We enter wholeheartedly into their joy. And likewise, genuine love will cause us to identify so intimately with our brothers and sisters that their sorrow becomes ours. Their tears will be followed by tears of our own. Friends, love demonstrated by sacrificial giving and generous hospitality and lives shared together, by these we know that we are in Christ. See, Christ is the source of our love. And we glorify him by loving God and loving one another. But our obligation to love doesn't end with loving God and loving God's people. If we continue allowing Jesus to inform our thoughts, what we'll see is that he expands the scope of love. Right? He opens it up. He broadens it. So listen to Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that 
you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right, so far we've seen that we worship God by loving Him and by loving our fellow believers. But woven together with this call is a call to love our enemies, those who seek to persecute us, those who hate us. Jesus says these people somehow are also our neighbors. And our love for them is evidence that we are indeed sons of the Father. Did you get that? He says our love for unbelievers is evidence that we are sons of the Father in heaven. And so we worship God by loving unbelievers. And Paul picks up that theme in verse 14 and 17 through 20 here in Romans. Okay, listen to what, listen to what he says. And again, he's sort of just echoing the words of his master, right? He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Who do we love? Well, we love unbelievers. And how do we love them? We love them by not retaliating in evil. See, taking his cue from Jesus, Paul focuses on how Christians are to respond to those who persecute them. And beginning in verse 14, we're told to bless our enemies with good. And the greatest good that we can bless them with is love. And so Paul says one of the ways we love them is by pursuing peace with them. Listen to me, friends. Peace with unbelievers is our responsibility. Do not expect pagan, unbelieving people to act like Christians. I don't don't understand why we're so shocked when, when people who hate God act like they hate God. Right? Peace with unbelievers is our responsibility. Verse 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We are called to do whatever it takes, short of compromising the gospel to ensure peace. Okay? But listen, listen to me. Paul is no fool. Okay? He recognizes that conflict is inevitable. You see, the unbelieving world hates Jesus. And so they will hate you, they'll hate you, his followers, which is why he adds the qualification, if possible, right? Peace may not always be possible, but the inevitability of tension should never be an excuse for Christians to behave in a way that makes the conflict worse. Understand that? Just because, just because tension is inevitable doesn't mean that's an excuse for us to act obnoxious. Or 
an excuse to simply resign ourselves to a why-bother attitude. And that's because in addition to blessing unbelievers with good, we're also prohibited from repaying their evil with more evil. Right? Prohibited from doing that. You see, confronted with someone who is wronging us, our first thought isn't typically to bless them. Right? When someone's pounding on us, it's not, hey, let me bless you. That's not the first thought in our minds and in our hearts. The major temptation is to harm them by responding with a similar wrong. Right? Our wounded pride wants revenge. But in our minds, we call it justice. And so we're able to justify our retaliation by seeing ourselves as the noble means by which God's just and deserved judgment is executed on our oppressors. But Paul says, no. No. Don't do that. We're to love those who persecute us and trust, trust that God will execute justice in his own time. Right? And Paul hammers that home. He hammers that commandment home by reminding us who we are. We are the beloved. We are people who have quite undeservedly experienced the love and mercy of God. Remember that. Friends, in your rush, in my rush, to see justice done, never forget that at one time you were an enemy of God. But even while you were an enemy... God loved you and sent Christ to die for you in his great grace. And for a period of time that only he knows, God has delayed judgment in favor of mercy. And so instead of retaliation and wrath, our desire for the unbeliever is that they would repent of their sin, trust in Christ, and be made one of the beloved. That's our hope for them. That's our hope for them. That we could rejoice with one who was lost, but is now found. That we could embrace the one who was once our enemy, but is now our brother. That's the Christian hope. Christians are told to leave their persecutors to the Lord. And then they're challenged, then they're challenged to love their enemies in tangible ways. By attending to their hunger and their thirst. Right? That's what Paul, that's what Paul says there. You see, it's these simple acts of kindness, attending to hunger and thirst, that might provide an opportunity for us to proclaim the gospel to these people. Right? And so together with these loving acts of kindness, which Paul describes as heaping burning coals on their head, this gospel-saturated service might be the means of producing within these people the burning pangs of shame that by God's grace may lead them to repentance. Your gospel-saturated service to them may be God's means of producing repentance in their hearts. And so through our faithful demonstration of love, God causes death to be overcome by life. He causes evil to be overcome by good. And that's Paul's final message in verse 21. This whole section ends by returning to where it begins. Okay? Verse 9 and verse 21 say the same exact thing. It says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, Paul commends his fellow believers by saying this. 
Resist the sinful call of the world. Resist it. Don't allow yourselves to be overcome by evil. Persist in triumphing over evil with good. And what Jesus and John and Paul tell us is that the highest good we will ever pursue is love. Not the counterfeit idea of love put forth by this world, but agape love as demonstrated by Jesus Christ. He overcame evil with the goodness of the cross. And he calls his born-again people to take up their cross and follow him into the work of love. And so, friends, my challenge to you this morning is this. Worship God by loving God. Worship God by loving your fellow believers. And worship God by loving unbelievers. And love them generously, sacrificially, and faithfully. Love them with a love that is inconvenient for you and beneficial for them. Love until it hurts. That's what it means to be a Christian. Amen.